Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help inspire change. And today I'm joined by Anne Cairns and Janet Thomas. Anne Cairns is the Executive Vice Chairman of MasterCard, representing the organisation around the world. With a keen focus on inclusion, diversity and innovation, she plays an important role as Senior Ambassador and Executive Leader for the firm. She sits on the Global Management Committee and her prestigious career has included serving as the President of International Markets, where Anne oversaw all MasterCard customer-related activities in more than 200 countries. It is no surprise that Anne is regularly listed as one of the most influential women in the industry. But in addition, Anne is Global Co-Chair of the 30% Club. She is Chair of the Financial Alliance for Women and serves as a member of the UK Government's AI Council and the International Business and Diplomatic Exchange Advisory Board. She is currently Chair of Ice Clear Europe, owned by the Fortune 500 company Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE. And welcome to the show. It's fabulous to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Janet Thomas is a senior executive with more than 20 years of international banking experience, having executed transformational innovation both within complex global financial organisations and early stage startup businesses. She is regularly called upon for her expert opinion at the very highest levels, most notably as a presenter to the Bank of England Financial Markets Legal Committee and as a financial matter expert for Prime, a professional recognised international market expert at The Hague. Janet has been featured on the Powerlist Top 100 listing of the most influential Afro-Caribbean women every year since 2014. Janet, welcome to the show. It is great and thank you for inviting me. So, so first of all, ladies, I'm really intrigued to know what you've been up to. So your focus for 2020 and also what's changed. Uh, and I'm coming to you first of all. Uh, so what have you been focused on this year? Well, I've actually been focused on two things and uh, they're both very important. One is a gender balance and the other is artificial intelligence. And it's quite interesting because this year, I would say on the gender side, um, certainly in my own company, MasterCard, we haven't taken our foot off the gas there. Uh, we've just rolled out a big mentoring program for women across the co- company, 800 women. Uh, we've set ourselves a new target around the world of reaching 25 million women entrepreneurs in the next few years. And uh, we've made our uh, signature Girls for Tech program go online. We've reached almost over 800,000 girls right now, Um, but it was very physical, the girls coming into the office and experiencing what technology was. Uh, And now we brought that online, which is fabulous. Um, On the artificial intelligence side, I'm actually on the UK Government Council of AI, which has been a fascinating time as we've looked at the apps that the NHS are building and actually what artificial intelligence can do to help us through the current pandemic, but also what it could do for us in the future, the future of work. And and I have to say, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. at the Women in Payments Conference and uh, was invited to one of the uh, Technology for Girls events. And in fact, listeners to the show, I actually recorded an interview 
and, and got some live coverage from one of those those tech programs, which was just phenomenal. So I'm delighted to hear it's gone online. We'll be, we'll be featuring that in a, in a future episode as well. And wonderful, thank you. But just a quick question for you. So, so, so we talked about what has changed and clearly uh, taking the program online has been a major initiative as well. And as you're thinking about working with the various entrepreneurs around the world, any sense of what, what has shifted in that world? Well, I mean, look, we've had a massive shift to actually selling online. And uh, many small businesses are completely ill-equipped to deal with things like cybercrime. And of course, uh, when we've gone online, obviously, you've seen a, an explosion in the rate of fraud in some areas. And what we're doing right now is using our cyber tools to actually help small businesses be able to keep themselves afloat by selling in the on online world, but giving them free services to say, this is how you protect yourself. And we're also doing that with... Um, health services as well, which are very much at the forefront of things right now. Absolutely. Wonderful. It's great, great to hear that. And, and I know that when we talk at the beginning there about the diversity and inclusion element of that, we'll, we'll certainly be returning to that at the show as well. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> without <laughs> question. Uh, so, Janet, let me come to you. I mean, you are always exceptionally busy. So, so what's your been your focus for 2020? And, and again, what's changed? Okay, so what really keeps me busy at the moment, um, like Anne, I have a couple of things that are very, very exciting. So I'm currently a managing director of Infinity Capital, and our core market is really Africa. We have very, very deep relationships with the banking sector across sub-Sahara Africa. And what's really been really interesting to me in this period of COVID in particular is some of the technologies that we saw banks develop like six or seven years ago they're now being taken up, taken up and used much more aggressively in the new world of COVID, I, to, to inform people when they do transactions. And, and not only that, the timestamps, the detail on the actual transaction, what they bought, et cetera, before it would just be, this is what you purchased, the amount. But now some companies, some banks here in the UK are now giving a lot more um, detail and information. And that's really interesting for me. So I feel that um, Africa, in a, in a strange sort of way, not recognised for some of the cutting edge and leading technology. And, and when I look forward, what's really exciting to me is this definition of money. But the money and how it's seen today, I think, is going to be the biggest game changer going forward. And I think what's leading the way around that will be what's happening in the payment space. So that's one thing that I'm very close to um, and some of the other groups that I sit on, we, we talk about that constantly, about what does the new world look like in terms of currency. The second thing is um, I was recently appointed to um, a board as a non-executive director and, and, and interestingly a paid board as well. So I get paid for my expertise, which is nice. And it's a health tech company. And so when I joined in January, COVID wasn't quite here yet. And it's a um, tele-video um, collaboration platform technology. And with COVID, what we've now found is that we've been completely thrown into the spotlight. Everybody wants to use our product. We're having to scale up very quickly. So I was actually brought onto the board to help with scaling up and to expand internationally. But what I'm finding is that we're having to scale up very quickly in the UK at a pace that we never had to before. And then we're getting lots of inquiries from overseas, like the, the large telecommunication companies. So for me, it's very exciting times. It's very interesting that 
healthcare and financial services or the financial or the finance industry. The, the similarities between them is that both those areas are going to undergo significant change. And in both those areas, if you think about five, 10 years ahead, I think how we interact with financial services and how we um, receive healthcare at the point of need or, pre- or for prevention, it's going to look very different. So I'm very excited about my world personally. Fantastic. That's, it's just amazing. And while you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, I, I, I'm a trustee of a charity called Street Child. And we do a lot of work in, in Africa, as you know, and thinking about, you know, you talk about the kind of, well, first of all, you know, the dynamics of money and how that changes, but the role of technology in able to, to, for financial inclusion. And I know that's something that MasterCard thinks about a great deal as well. So really, really fascinating. I wish we could talk about that, actually, but of course, being diversity podcast, we're going to talk about uh, the changing world of work, if we may. And, and Anne, I'm going to come to you first of all, really, and thinking about, um, you know, we're all adapting to new ways of working, exactly as, as, as Janet was, was saying, in terms of the technologies that we're using as well. And I'm wondering what, what, from your opinion, what this means for women, particularly in the world of work. And uh, you know, we're thinking about wanting to reach a, a gender equal society within the next 25 years. I, I wonder to what degree this is going to galvanise change. Well, I don't think that we'll go back, actually, Julia. I mean, women have been fighting to be able to work remotely and flexibly for so many years. And for so many years, there's been pushback by a very presenteeism culture, especially in the finance world. And all of a sudden, because of the pandemic, we could switch to working remotely overnight. I mean, I'm actually the chair of a clearinghouse, Ice Clear Europe. And that's been working remotely, even during the times that uh, oil has gone into negative price bands. Amazing. Um, So I think that has, you know, really proven that this can work. And I think in the future, firms will be looking at their real estate and saying, hey, we don't need these big office blocks in the center of the city. Um, You know, we can have a mix and match system here that could work a lot better for women who, as we know, have more childcare and aging parent care going on in their lives. The only thing I'd say is with the combination of the schools being off at the same time, I'm hearing a lot of um, complaints from women that I'm talking to. Just just before this call, I was on with a very senior female executive who said, my uh, 12-year-old son just refuses to be home educated by his dad. So, you know, I have to do all of that. And she's not the first person who said that. So I think that women while benefiting from this, um, are struggling with, you know, home care with their kids at home. And it's probably made it really clear to the whole world who takes responsibility for the kids. I was reading an article in the uh, New York Times yesterday saying exactly that. The Japanese men have suddenly appreciated how much work their working wives do at home. And, you know, the Japanese men are starting to appreciate that. Um, I'm sure that it's appreciated all over the world. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, one, one big dynamic of that is you know, the unpaid work that, that women do and, and, and say an, an opening realisation to the contribution that that makes, not only in terms of home, but society and, and also the, uh, the extraneous elements of work as well. So I am quite hopeful because if you, if you think about some of the industry dynamics out there, so the Hampton Alexander Review in February came out and said that you know 57% of, of organizations are meeting or exceeding the 33 percent 
uh, target. And I'm wondering to what degree the world sort of looks at numbers like that and thinks it's job done. You know, the, so I'm obviously now beginning to very gently go into the conversation about the 30% club. And, uh, you know, in the, in the current climate, it's important to kind of keep the, the foot to the, the pedal, really. Uh, Janet, can I come to you and your thoughts on that in, in terms of, you know, are, are we at a point where the world thinks, OK, so we, we've, we've ticked that box. We've got other things to think about. Let's, let's not worry about it anymore. Yeah, sure. I'd like to pick up on something that Anne said earlier about not going back um, and to give my own perspective on that. And I totally agree with that. And I, I just don't think we are going to go back. And my reason for saying that was that, um, Julie, as you know, in 2014, I became president of Women in Banking and Finance. And during my tenure, the three-year tenure of being president of Women in Banking and Finance, I had to make a number of changes to the organisation. And, you know, there's a lot of cynicism at the time about, you know, do we need women in banking and finance as a movement? And it's, it caters to every, every single cohort in the organisation in terms of young women coming into the industry, managers in mid-track, and then your senior leaders, who we would welcome their help in being mentors and sponsors to the younger women. What I, when I was going changing the organisation and thinking about what, what should be the core messages or the key drivers for this organisation, one of the things that I began to see much more clearly, even back then, 2014, which is six years ago, it doesn't sound that long, but it was really, it, it really struck me as being something really different, that the younger women coming through, and at that time we called them the millennials, they had a really different attitude about whether they would walk the same path as women like myself. And they were very clear. They were, they were very clear that they would not walk the same path. They would do things differently. And, and, I, and I also sense great impatience for them. So now six years on, those women are firmly in organisations. And they're, I'm not saying that women like myself are, you know, shy or not wanting to come out we have a different approach but these young women coming through the organization and, and those coming behind them are even more vocal they're very clear that they're not going to go backwards whatever come what may there's no going back and and, and we've seen things happen like the the various movements like the me too movements and so on we, we've seen those movements come very much to the forefront i saw that that was very sharp at women in banking and finance to the point that I had to set up a millennials group so that those women could come into women in banking and finance and shape their ideas. So that's one thing that I would say. Now, coming back to the Hampton Alexander review, I do think that um, the, the progress that the industry has made towards greater female representation at board level has to be applauded. Because I remember when the review started, I mean, I've been in the industry quite some time and I remember the various reviews, the dialogue and so on, and the numbers that we would throw out there, it's going to take us 100 years, it's good, we'll never get there. And, and things have been really, in, the speed has been, the time has been shortened and I think that has to be applauded. But we're not done yet. I mean, you do, you still have, if you look at the FTSE 350, you have 57 companies who have either met or exceeded 
33% target. But what about the others? Right, so there's still work to be done there. And also, um, the great focus, I think, particularly when I was, definitely now, but when I was president of Women in Banking and Finance, the, the great debate at that time, and it is for the future, was what about the executive pipeline? Why are we building? There's, you know, a lot of talk and some, in, some, in some respects, criticism. You know, we're focused on the top, but if you don't build the pipeline, how can gender balance throughout an organization be sustainable for the long term? So for me, I think that the folk is great, the work that we've um, achieved at board level, and that should not stop and that should continue and that should grow and strengthen. But I think at the same time, we need different strands of focus or different objectives. And there must be even greater focus on making sure that the success that we've achieved so far is, is sustained and held and improved upon. So those are, those are things I've seen. But I do think that the millennials, for me, they're the ones to watch. Definitely. And, and I think this point about the pipeline uh, is, is incredibly important and, and something very practical for organisations and listeners to take away in terms of if you're to focus on one thing at the moment. Uh, however, uh, and actually, Janet, you were talking earlier about, you know, your, your international work. And, 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 and in, when I was reading your biography earlier, I was talking about your experience of working across 200 different countries with, with MasterCard as well. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, we've talked very much with a UK lens or a UK focus in the conversation so far but I know you're thinking about diversity inclusion internationally and I'd love to hear your thoughts on where where must we where must we focus okay well first of all um just to carry on what uh, where Janet was in terms of things like the 30 percent club um 30 percent clubs now in over 14 countries the last country we launched was Japan and we're busy working on Mexico um, and China right now, because I would like to expand that across the G20 countries. Um, and what we see when we look around the world is a very mixed bag. I mean, if you look across at Australia, they're rather like Britain. They've achieved their 30% membership, though, you know, number of women on boards. And actually, the 30% club has a similar target for women on the Exco. So, you know, we are thinking about women coming up the ladder in companies in the corporate world. Um, but then when you look at somewhere like Japan, that was about 4% a few years ago. Um, it's moved to, to 10, which is actually quite a change for them. Um, Hong Kong is below 14%. Um, and even in America, we're just below the 30% level. So there's so much to do. And of course, when you get to the GCC countries, it becomes very difficult to measure. But you know, you're talking single percentage points, low single percentage points, and also about 8% in Brazil. So what we're seeing around the world is that women are still not taking their place economically. There's no question about it. But to go to Janet's point about millennials, a lot of research has been published lately, um, mainly by companies like McKinsey, that have looked at where do women start, you know, dropping off the corporate ladder. And it actually turns out to be the first step, the first step into management, if you like. Um, there, there starts to be an acceleration of men and a dropping off of women. And it can be for all sorts of reasons. But as soon as you're there, then that pipeline is starting to narrow. So you might be a company that's bringing in 50-50 male and female from university, and it might actually be more of a skewed ratio because in many parts of the world, 
women are graduating more than men. Britain's in Britain, that's happening. Um, but what happens when the women reach sort of that 30-ish age group and they're going on to, to actually manage, that's when it starts to drop off. And uh, in so many companies, that's the case. So we really do need to focus there and say, how do we move the needle on that? And how do we change people's minds? But I do think going back to the 30% club, we are working with the B20, which advises the G20. Um, that's happening in Saudi Arabia this year. And we're a knowledge partner. And we're talking about things that we want removed from a law perspective, laws that prohibit women working in different industry sectors, um, laws that stop women owning property and therefore having collateral to start their own businesses. There's things that happen, have to happen on the legal front, as well as putting in targets for having 30% and more women in senior positions and on boards. And the reason I say more is people keep saying to me, Heck, Anne, why isn't it 50%? And I say, as far as I'm concerned, that's what we should go for. But the point is about the 30%, it's a minimum threshold that we've set. And once you have more than 30% of any minority in the room, then they cease to be a minority. And I'm sure that Janet will probably bring up, you know, a deeper point on minorities in the discussion soon. Well, 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 let's turn straight to that, really, which is then thinking about some of the, um, you know, the ethnic minority representation questions. Janet, can I bring bring you straight in there for, for your thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I, I, it's very interesting, the point that Anne makes about um, the recent study showing that where women drop off in terms of that point in their career, because um, I see that fall off um, happening a lot earlier. And, and it's something that, Julia, you and I have spoken about over the years. Um, and I've spoken to um, Anne about it recently, but when I was at, um, president of Women in Banking and Finance, we did some soft surveys. We were, had the advantage of seeing young black women coming into the industry, and we were able to track them, find out the support that they needed. And also at the time, in 2014, I was a trustee of um, the Palace Foundation which is a foundation which gives support to young black men and women in university to prepare them for the world of work. And so we give them sponsorship, we give them mentorship and so on. So a large number of those individuals who pass through the Powerless Foundation, a good number of them would go into financial services. I can honestly say by the time I had finished as president of Women in Banking and Finance, I think the young women in particular, the young black women that I met when I became president, when I stepped down as president, I only knew that one was left in banking. The, the, the 40 odd that I knew, they had all gone. And I see that all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm now busy working for Infinity Capital. So I've not spent enough time researching it over the last two years. And as you know, last year I was working in India um, as a CEO of a tech company. So I've just come back. I've been in the UK less than 12 months. But I think it's worrying. I think it's deeply concerning that the attrition rate is so, not only is it so early, but it's so deep. 
And can I ask why you think that is? I mean, one one thought that immediately comes to my mind is um, role models. You know, do do we see enough people in the industry and just go? Actually, I could aspire to be as because as we know from the hundreds of conversations with leaders on the podcast series, is you know if you can see it, you can be it. Is that is that one of the reasons? I'd love to hear more more thoughts about why. Well, I think it is, Julia, because and you know, financial services is very very broad. You have banks, you have asset management companies, you have um, the payment companies, you have the data companies. It's very very broad. But if you look at each of those um, big sectors and you look into the guts of those organisations, I think representation across the board is actually very, very low. And in some, in some sectors, it's almost non-existent. And so it's very difficult, I think, if you're coming in. I mean, it, you know, when I entered into banking, that wasn't my mindset in terms of looking for a role model. But that's the times of change. I think the young coming in are much more strategic strategic in their viewpoints. They're looking and they're seeing, if there's someone at the top, then I know that I have a good chance of making it in this industry. But if there's no one at the top, what it, it sends a clear signal that something is not quite right because we're in multicultural Britain. So why, why wouldn't you have diversity? I mean, in London, when you walk around, there's diversity everywhere. I mean, everywhere. So why is it that the workplace doesn't reflect society at all? Um, and so I think it gives that sharp message. And then also, if, if you're in the workplace and you need support, who do you reach out to for that level of support? So there's a number of, I think, um, some things are very obvious and some things are much more complex. But I think the first and most important thing is that the industry gives a message out to those coming into the industry as to whether they'll be able to achieve their full potential. And and, and can I bring you in there to, to, to respond with your thoughts? I mean, clearly from the work you've done with the 30% Club is you talked earlier about policy and the various levers that can be engaged in terms of policy and then also um, setting targets as well. Uh, and I wonder if there are some, some uh, tactics that have been used in the gender conversation that we could certainly employ in terms of ensuring that there's greater ethnic minority representation. Absolutely, Julia. And I think there's a number of things that companies can do. If I think about the situation that we're in now, many companies are only really recruiting for key roles. They're probably not recruiting even the big industries, thousands of roles right now. And, um, and they're probably putting people on furlough and maybe restructuring their companies. I think during this time, um, it's very important for hiring managers to look at the, the job that they're trying to hire for and really pay attention to, have you actually created a diverse slate of candidates? How does this balance out the team that you have in place? Have you put an interview panel in place that actually has you know a diverse uh, representation so that they can ask a whole range of different questions and you know to the point um that Janet was making you know have 
have somebody that is a role model that, you know, would actually encourage people to join your company if they're really bright people that, you know, with, with um, you know, with diverse backgrounds. And um, so I think you can do that on the hiring side. I think you can look at your attrition and say, why are people leaving this company? Because often it's about fixing the culture of the company. Let's not be fixing the women or fixing the minorities. They don't need fixing. <laughs> it's, it's actually the culture that we have to change and then there's also um well just a minute you're putting people on furlough and you're you're restructuring your company are you doing this fairly have you looked at the data in your hands and said you know um i you know i'm not over um a bias to actually letting people from minority groups go for example uh, what does my data look like i think we live in the data age. We consume data. And we've got artificial intelligence algorithms that can help us um, consume data and get fabulous insights. We should be using them combined with human common sense and cultural values to actually push the needle forward. And there's never been a better time to do it. If we don't do it now, we could come out of this pandemic and not have changed. This is a point in our lives when we have the time to actually almost pause and reset and say, remote working works. I want a more diverse workforce because actually we know that companies perform better. Am I actually attracting the best and brightest to my business and am I keeping them? And if not, why not? And let's really have these questions asked and answered. And I think that's a great moment just to pause the conversation for a second where we turn to Cynthia for any research to support today's discussion. In the 2020 report, Women in the Workforce, Global Quick Take from Global Nonprofit Catalyst, women account for 40% or more of the total labour force globally. Women spend more time performing unpaid work such as childcare. Unpaid caregiving responsibilities can prevent paid employment opportunities and this work disproportionately falls to women. Globally, only 1.5% of men provide unpaid care on a full-time basis compared to 21.7% of women. The future of work may bring new opportunities for women as they already have the job skills to position them for roles in high growth fields of the future, but are overrepresented in the industries most likely to be affected by automation. By 2030, an estimated 40 to 160 million women may need to transition into higher skilled roles requiring higher education or upskilling. Women are currently underrepresented in high-skilled subjects like STEM. And globally, women make up 35% of STEM students and only 22% of professionals in the field of artificial intelligence. So just before we went to the, the research break, as I like to call it, we were talking there about, you know, we're in this, this state of change, an accelerated state of change, heightened awareness, if you like, about how organisations have had to reframe as well. I'd really like to get your thoughts about, again, very practical things that listeners can take today and, and pay attention to and really change. Yeah, so I, just picking up from where Anne left off about this time being an opportunity to really take a step back, look at, from a first perspective, what, the, what their policies are, good practice, what they're doing to increase um, 
not only gender diversity, but ethnicity diversity, there are a great many of um, really great recruitment firms who can really help to accelerate um, firms' efforts in bringing forward very, very talented candidates so they can have a much more diverse um, candidate slate. So I would urge firms to encourage their HR departments to really make a a good focus on connecting with these firms because they're out there and they've done great work. Um, And and, and I think that, that, that starts the process. And then, and then, and it's to say that if we don't have a diverse candidate, then to, then these questions should be asked, challenges should be raised, and and to encourage HR and hiring managers to make sure they bring different candidates to the table. And, and it's incredibly important to to hold that to account, uh, particularly right now, as these these hires, any hires that are coming in, are really really well thought through and are uh, are. The, the diversity conversation is held front of mind and find the right partners to help you do that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And some firms do it really well. Some firms do it brilliantly. So, um, you know, there is good practice out there and I think we can learn from each other. I mean, what, what I didn't say earlier on was that I'm part of a group called Baron, and it's an HR group. And we do talk about good practice within the workplace. And so there are organisations for firms to connect to to find out what others are doing and how successful those policies are. And, and I've always believed, you know, I'm the CEO of my own business. I've always believed that would ultimately give you a competitive edge. And of course, now as we're looking looking ahead, you know, arguably some people would say we're about to go into a period of a very difficult economic uh, or a very difficult economic climate. And what my general sort of frame of mind is, but one that is potentially rife with opportunity. And Anne, I'd love to your final thoughts as we as we wrap up the show uh, on uh, reasons to be optimistic. You know, as you travel the world and you talk to many many different people, uh, yeah, your, your your thoughts on what we should be optimistic about. Well, Julia and Janet, I I think well. First of all, Janet, culture definitely trumps strategy and those firms doing the right thing are the ones to watch. But I would say. When I was in Davos earlier this year, the World Economic Forum came out and said it's going to be 250 year, 57 years now until we have women's you know, equality around the world. And everybody threw their hands up in horror. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic, which is accelerating everything. And I think these two things joined together mean that so many people around the world, companies, governments have realized that this is complete nonsense. We cannot be doing this with half the human race. We have to make everyone economically viable in the future and be able to add value to the planet. Because guess what? Um, You mentioned climate. Climate change is the next big thing, and we're going to need the best and the brightest and everyone engaged in solving that. And what I see is a great desire to change the world. I actually was in Colombia a few months ago, and I met the president there, and he said to me, I want to open the 30% club here. And I thought it's so great to hear presidents of countries say this because they realize that equality is an important thing in their economy. And I think that all good business leaders realize that around the world. And it's a question of making that culture change, making it fast and making it last. 
Thank you. What a wonderful way to end the show. I can't tell you how grateful I am for you both taking the time out, particularly in these extraordinary times. Uh, I think we've covered an enormous amount, really, in a relatively short period of time. We've looked what's been happening close to home. We've been thinking on international dynamics. We've been very, very practical and very focused in terms of things that organisations can, can do tomorrow. Uh, just, actually, don't wait till tomorrow. Do it today. Anne and Janet, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Thank you both very much indeed. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.